Welcome to the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. Today's guest was Mark Alfieri, and I thought he did a fabulous job. It was really interesting to listen to his story about how he had an institutional background, tried something entrepreneurial, by his words failed. I'm sure he didn't fail, but, (laughs) and then kind of went back and tried again, and obviously just hit it out of the park. So that was, that was pretty exciting to hear. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, it's a very, uh, he's a humble guy. He's a smart guy. Uh, he makes real estate seem pretty, not super complicated, you know? Um, but I like this story about when he owned, you know, he's always an entrepreneur. His dad's an immigrant. He, uh, you know, he went from owning a bar to owning, you know, being the CEO of a publicly traded company <laughs> and just like, yeah, he doesn't have a big ego about it, you know, which is pretty cool. And I think once you get that entrepreneurial bug, you just can't get it out of you. So I think you need a failure or two in there just to kind of, if you're going to knock it out of the park at some point, it just, uh, it goes with the job. But it was interesting because I can't remember, I guess he said his parents were immigrants. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, I always feel like people who have that, that mentality they just work harder and smarter. And, you know, he was appreciative of his contacts. And, you know, I think we started off talking about gratitude, but I feel like there, there's a lot of gratitude in that personality. And so it was, it was exciting to hear his story. Yeah. He's a risk taker. Maybe that comes from having, I don't know, you know, maybe this comes from having immigrant parents. You're willing to take risks because it's like, you don't have, like Bob Dylan says, if you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Right. So uh, sometimes that makes That's it a little easier to take a risk. Yeah. Uh, well, awesome folks. Thanks, Lisa. And please everyone rate, review the podcast, share with your friends. Uh, and please message us on LinkedIn or email. If you have any questions or ideas, always happy to explore new topics on the podcast. So have a great holiday season and we will see you soon. Thanks. Thanks everyone. Bye. So Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on pleasure happy to be here are you in dallas today no i'm actually in uh, college station texas are you where we home at uh, a development called traditions it's a golf course community where uh, we hang out a lot have a bunch of friends with homes in here so it's uh, kind of like revisiting college <laughs> you know frat parties on the weekends and of course uh, yeah I see the keg so, behind you. Yeah. <laughs> up there. Uh, but it, it's, you know, this is kind of our, our lake house on the golf course. And then my, uh, are you a Texan originally? No, I'm from Pennsylvania, but grew up in Texas. So I moved there when I was like eight years old, very young. My sister, uh, you know, went to, went to A&M. Did she? She's, yeah, she's uh, She's a smart one. But a bump. She went. She's much younger than me. She's half sister, not step. She's half sister, so she's literally twenty years younger than me. So, um, my family. I grew up in New Jersey, and then she was born in. I forget where she was born, but she moved to Texas when she was very little, and then grew up there. So in the Houston area, and then went to yeah A and M, and she's an engineer. She lives in Austin now. So if you need a, a good engineer in Austin. Give me a holler. It's a great uh, engineering school for sure. So, but it's been fun. We bought this house probably, I don't know, in 2017. So 
during COVID, it was great. We just kind of hung out down here because they didn't have COVID in College Station. No. We skipped over it. Yeah, it's awesome. And they, they didn't have masks or anything yeah. like that. So it was, um, but we did. We spent a lot of time down here just, just hanging out. It's been, uh, it's been nice to have a place to get away on the weekends. That's awesome. So, and then we, you and I have known each other for a while now. I forget exactly yeah. when we first met, but it was definitely back pre-more residential. Yeah, pre-more. Amley, I think I was with. Yeah, you're with Amley for a long time. Yeah. Um, well, can, yeah, now you're the chief, CEO, chief executive officer for more residential right. out of the Dallas area, right? Yeah. Um, can you tell Plain. us about Plano to be exact? Okay. Yeah. Can you tell us about more residential and what what, you, what it is? Sure. So um, we we really goes back to 2006. Uh, Amley sold, and um, I I went to work for a Dallas based uh, company, non traded REIT sponsor actually, and we started a a non traded apartment REIT, which which I ran. And uh, it became Monogram Residential, mm -hmm. and we listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and that sold in 2000. So I'll skip over this. We can go into it more detail. Sold in 2017, and uh, our ticker symbol was more. So I, I <laughs> started the new company. They wouldn't let me keep the name Monogram, so I, I started a new company. And really, in 2018 and partnered with a company in San Francisco called Stockbridge, who you yes. know. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's just been uh, amazing ever since. So my senior team, I think we have 16 people now from the old company, from Monogram, that have joined us and hired a few others, and we're, we're growing and, and moving very fast, pretty much doing the, the same thing with a little different twist. Uh, we're not a public company, so um, thankfully, uh, mm -hmm. but it's it's institutional capital, and we've got a, a large commitment from some sovereign funds, and we're out doing our thing. And then what, what exactly is that thing? So <clears throat> we were uh, Class A. Monogram was Class A apartments. And, right. You know, yeah. A lot in San Francisco, a lot on the West Coast, Texas, and all the way up to Boston. And um, we we basically built that platform buying and building new with developers. So relationships were all with merchant builders. So um, we've kind of uh, replicated that here. Uh, mm. We started out with four conventional properties, but then, you know, this whole... SFR things started to really be a focus of ours. We just think it's a terrific asset class and something that's new and something that we could really make a splash in and knew that there was significant investor demand. So we, we you know, uh, put together a club of investors around SFR, build to rent really, communities. And so we have... Um, well over a billion dollars in equity commitments and we're out 
buying these build-to-rent communities across the country from developers. So the same structures that we did before, uh, mm -hmm. but and we, we buy the properties at final CO, typically, although we're now we're acquiring some, some already finished properties and stabilized properties. But uh, yeah, so we're growing rap rapidly. I think we closed uh, nine properties in 2022 and have 20 plus under construction right now and several more under contract. So we're, we're growing quite rapidly. That's awesome. Yeah. And then is it, what's the biggest difference between like buying and operating a multifamily as opposed to an SFR? Well, you know, it's really, you know, you've got the public SFR companies that are scattered sites. They own scattered homes and various developments, one here, five there. These are communities just like apartments, so we run them very apartment-like. The difference would be that they're smaller. You know, you may have an 80-unit or 100-unit property that you really can't warrant a, a full staff on, so you have to manage around that, and that can be a little tricky. But the interesting part is I think it's now up to about 70% of our leasing is done virtual. So we're all smart home, implementing smart home across the board. And, you know, I think I saw some statistics of ours the other day, uh, up to like 40% of our tours are after office hours. Like people come after work or on weekends and tour the properties on their own. Uh, they, the, the residents or the prospective residents uh, prefer kind of like going to a car dealership, you know, they prefer to just walk around on their own and check it out, have the virtual tour to That's have pressure. a leasing. Yeah. And so it's, but the statistics are remarkable. The closing ratios and everything are just as, as good or better even than you get with having leasing agents across the board. So we, we, we have leasing agents. They just may be at the property one or two days a week or for specific appointments. Uh, and so that's the primary difference. You, you don't have a full-time staff on the property. These are more home-like. They have garages, a lot of garages, backyards, those types of things. And they're much bigger units. They're typically twice as big as the average luxury apartment. And how far spread out are they from unit to unit? How far are they all within a con condensed area? Yeah, it, it depends. Some of them are, you know, just detached, single family, you know, kind of track home like uh, neighborhoods. So we've got those here where they're totally detached and they're little homes. Uh, some are townhome style, so they're, you know, more dense. And uh, but still, none of our units have anybody living on top of you. They're all. You know, at best, you may have one wall connecting, and that's typically like a garage wall. And um, so it, it's a great alternative to, uh, you know, conventional apartments and the, the sort of millennial demographic that's having a difficult time buying a home that wants a yard, that's going through the nesting process, wants to be in areas where homes are being built. These are also very... They're 
much more suburban than we were. Our last company was very urban focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are, you know, first and second ring type locations and they're further out, but the demand has been, it's been remarkable. I mean, we kind of projected that on these things, they'd be, you know, 30, 40% leased when they get to final CEO. Typically they're, they're almost fully leased. There's such demand. The residents tend to be, you know, more sticky. They, they stay longer. Um, and yeah. I, I just think it's like a whole new burgeoning asset class that is going to ultimately replace, I believe, the sort of garden style apartment. Well, I remember first seeing, hearing about that one uh, during the great financial crisis when a lot of these shops started you know they built the building all these homes for sale like in texas arizona and all of a sudden no one could get a mortgage and then they're like yeah. shit what, what, what do we do with this <laughs> yeah and they started renting that, them out that's that's exactly what's happening we've got projects that we're acquiring right now from you know national home builders that exactly that happened they started oh is that what's happening oh wow okay because so, of the interest uh, rates and it's tighter mortgages? Is that- yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. I mean, liquidity is drying up and lenders are very cautious and uh, people are nervous. And, you know, it, it's just, I mean, look, the cost of a mortgage is my daughter just bought a home and they're, uh, they had to uh, reduce their kind of expectations and take a much smaller home just because their interest rates went from three when they were looking a year and a half ago to, I think they closed it close to a seven. Yeah. And that's painful. Wow. So the affordability index, you know, between uh, renting and buying the spread, the gap, home ownership is as high as it's ever been relative to renting. Even with rents going up as much as they have, Still, the cost of home ownership is off the charts right now. So I think for the next couple of years, it's going to be great times, in, in particular for this asset class. Did you, is it labor intensive too? But also, like, what were you, it says now you're buying from like home builders, but like, did you buy, let me backtrack. It's not the most institutional asset class, I guess. I think the statistics, it was like only 2% of the all the, Homes for rent in America are owned by institutional asset, you know, asset managers. Like, and so like right. if you're buying an existing portfolio, that's not new construction, like who do you buy that from? Where do you find that? Well, that's the thing. Most of it is it's virtually all new construction because typically a home builder will build them and then sell a few homes to a, a SFR company. These SFR REITs have just really blown up. But to your point, there's kind of a differential between single family rental and this asset class. This is really build to rent. Okay? Yeah. These are purpose built rental communities. They'll have a clubhouse in many, many instances, a leasing office, and they're like an apartment. They're just homes. Right. And so apartment developers are getting into building these The national home builders do it. The Menards, the Pulte's, the DR Horton's all, uh, play in this space and then lots of traditional kind of merchant builders that have been doing apartments all these years have shifted over to this but the small regional home builder has really 
set the tone. So we, that's where most of ours have come from, from smaller regional home builders that really like the idea of being able to sell all the homes in a development to one buyer, right? Rather than having to take the risk of selling them out. And so their margins are less than if they sold them individually, but their risk is also dramatically reduced selling selling them all to us. So we make a commitment that if you deliver it on time at a certain price, we will be there to buy 100% of the homes. And so it's it's kind of a cool deal if and the only issue they have today is rising costs, you know, and so as yeah. costs have gone up, they've had some exposure. But yeah, it's... Uh, I think it's a it's a great sector. We'll we'll continue to do conventional as well. Mm. So we have some conventional properties. We've got one in Anaheim, one in Seattle, and two in the Dallas area. So we'll continue to do that. But but the big part of our business, I think, over the next couple of year, years, will be this build to rent. Mark, I I think you have kind of you have reached the holy grail of what everybody wants to do, right? When you when people get into real estate, I think the dream is always I'm going to start something on my own and have success. And I'm Chris and I speak to people, especially now in this market where acquisitions folks aren't that busy, so their minds are working, and they're constantly talking to us about, well, you know, what would it look like for me to start something? What do you think if you could give some advice to folks that are out there? I'm sure it looks easy now that you've achieved this success, but going from working for an institution to creating your own institution, what are some of the things that kind of helped you to achieve that success? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting topic. <laughs> Tell us all your secrets. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I've had some painful lessons in my, my life, uh, getting to kind of where we are today. It's, um, I've always been pretty entrepreneurial started. I had a, immigrant father from Italy that was, you know, self-employed, real entrepreneur. And I was an entrepreneurial guy and started my first, my first business was in college. I opened a bar my junior year in college with a local business owner. And, you know, I was a bartender for him, but I always wanted my own bar, even at that young age. And so we had a bar and I stayed for a few years after I graduated with the bar and ended up moving to Dallas to get into real estate. And um, I decided early on that I wanted to um, have my own business. And so I didn't have any money, so I had to take a job. And I started out as an acquisitions guy, which by the way, I still say today is the best job a young person in the real estate business can have. In fact, an old person, I, I still <laughs> Acquisitions is just the coolest thing in the world. I mean, all the contacts you make, it's fun, it's exciting, it's just great. So I got an acquisitions job for a Dallas-based company, started buying apartments. It was late 80s, so it was really tough times. Did and you know I anything about apartments? Didn't know a thing. And um, so I never forget, I started out back in those days, they gave me a, a stack of index cards with apartment owner names on it. it says call these guys and see if they want to sell. <laughs> and that's what you did. And so 
as it turned out, we had the savings and loan crisis back then. And so we yes. were kind of a startup and we just took off. So ended up in my first few years buying you know, probably 50 properties in Texas from foreclosed savings and loan from the oh, FDIC wow. and from another thing and developed a lot of relationships in Canada, primarily in Germany, investors. So by the time I was probably 30, I started my own business again. I, you know, again, always wanted to do it. My, I don't need these guys. That was a huge mistake. I, these guys were great that I worked with and they had terrific resources. I was making a ton of money, but it just, you know, I wanted to be the boss. I wasn't ready to be the boss, <laughs> but I wanted to be. So I started my own company and it, it did well. I mean, it lasted uh, for about seven years and, you know, made, made good money, but slowly, slowly it just started to, we started selling properties and my investors who were really opportunistic were selling now at the top of the market. So I decided to, that point after building a company and watching it kind of sell that I wanted to be more institutional. So I started uh, focusing on uh, public companies. The apartment reads were just kind of coming into to favor and really in the 93, 94. And so I found Amley based in Chicago. Uh, someone told me they were looking for an acquisition guy and I was I don't know, it's probably 35 at the time. And I flew to Chicago and went, just kind of knocked on the door and said, I'm your guy. <laughs> big Dallas. That's an immigrant. They could have an immigrant. They get the job done. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you, they would tell you today, nobody's worked harder for a job than I did that job. I was overqualified. They didn't want to pay anything. And I said, that's fine. Just. I want to go to work for a public read. I want to have institutional experience and I want to be your guy. So I remember I started out at just peanuts and I said, just give me one year. And they did. And we, we, we did well. I think I had my first property under contract. And of course I'm in the business. I know everybody in Dallas area anyway. So I had my first property under contract in a week and Chicago was panicking, said, what is this guy doing? What have you done? But we took off and so that was great. And I got to learn what it was like to do with institutional capital. Uh, you know, I got to go to Wall Street with my boss. He'd take me on, you know, road shows and meeting with the investors. Really, that was my first foray into the public world. And I decided at that time that that was my goal. I want to I want to run a public read one day. How, how can I get there? You know, borrowing from College Station. How am I going to get to be a CEO of a public read? Well, as it turns out, Amley was great. Did very well. You know, we all made a lot of money when it sold in 2006. And I had a couple of opportunities at that time. I actually took a, a job with a very large company, the largest apartment company in the world as chief investment officer. Wow. And then my entrepreneurial side kicked in again and I got a call from this Dallas company that said, we'll let you start this REIT and run it. It's your baby. 
you make, you, you tell us what you want to buy, we'll raise the capital, you run the real estate side of it. So I left this position, which I look back, and if I told you who it was, you'd say, you're nuts, Mark, because it was, <laughs> it was just kind of in its infancy, and now it's massive. And um, as it turned out, I ended up selling my public company to that company. It got oh, to that's be awesome. So yeah. So, um, yeah, so I started building Monogram Residential, really, with Behringer Harvard out of Dallas in, in 2006 and hired, put a team together, mostly Anley people that after the sale, you know, had, had to look for other options. Brought people in from Chicago and Atlanta that I'd worked with at Amley, and we were off and running by 2009 and 10. We were the largest acquirer of multifamily in the country, and and that was after the great financial during the great financial crisis when it was a great time to buy. So we built a big company, and um, so I'm going to get to your question in a minute. So. That was it. My entrepreneurial side kicked in, but I had now, I was armed with institutional experience and a track record. People knew me in Wall Street. They knew me. Institutions knew me. I did deals with lots of different investors. Amley had, I think we had something like 50 properties that were co-invested with institutions and 13 institutional partners and and so I was a different, different person at that time and uh, with, with, you know, some skins on the wall. So that was great. And we built the company. And uh, so I, I think there's a couple lessons there along the way. One, the first time that I went out on my own was a huge mistake. Just too young. I had some early success. And I hear I've had lots of young guys come to me do really well, excel, and then say, I'm going to go start my own thing. It's not so easy. It's hard. And uh, you have to make payroll, and you have to still do the deals and everything else. And it was it was a huge error in judgment. Now, it turned out well because I found Amelie, ultimately. But starting my own business cost me literally millions of dollars. Uh, we went through some tough times in the economics, had a couple of bad deals, and now I was, I was an investor too, and, and it, was, it was painful. So that was lesson number one. Lesson number two, even though it still turned out well, was I took a job for this huge company that, and by the way, I'd be so retired right now, we wouldn't even be talking if I'd have stayed there. So I left my entrepreneurial side, kicked in again, and said, I'm going to pass up this once-in-a-lifetime job where I have profit sharing in what is now this behemoth company and uh, because I just wanted to do my own thing. And it was, in hindsight, a big mistake. Turned out well because I was able to get to Monogram Residential. So we built Monogram and sold in 2017, payday. Decisions were, do I go to work for somebody? 
you know, I had some job offers. Why start my own thing again? Came to the same conclusion. <laughs> entrepreneurial side kicked in, and you know, um, so I'm doing it again. It remains to be seen if it was a mistake, but I think the long and the short of advice I could give people is just be patient. Decide where you want to get to and do what you ever ever you have to do to accomplish that goal. And what I had to do was put some institutional skins on the wall so that I would have the credibility in the market to go out and raise capital because that's what this is all about. It's all about raising capital. The deal side is the easy part. Raising the capital is what is hard. And so, yeah, I think I've been lucky, but I've been impatient and I've tried to tell my story to, to lots of people along the way that work for me, that come to me and tell me they're going out on their own. And uh, you know what? They never listen. They just <laughs> want to, you know, you know, they think it's easy to replicate and, you know, but having resources is what is most important. So if I was giving advice to people today, getting into the job market or early in their career, it would be align yourself with an institution that is growing and just get in the door and ride the wave. And ultimately it's going to lead to good things. Well, you're a risk taker. I mean, I mean, you took those, you took risks. I mean, real estate itself is, you know, risky investment, you know, buying a mutual fund or something, you know? So, and then, uh, you know, you went on your own a few times and something inside you is okay. You know, some people are super risk intolerant, you know, and some are more tolerant. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, I take a lot of risk. <laughs> this, this point in my life, it's, it's very different. You know, I, you kind of get to a point to where you're eyeing retirement and you're saying, you know what, I'll invest, but it's going to be a little. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm not gonna risk my retirement at this point in my life, and uh, so, but really, that's it. It's um, you, you have to be a little lucky too, uh, but choice of where you want to go, and that's why I think we're attracting people now to our company because my team, my senior management team, we've been together since Amway. I mean, a long time. We've done this three times, built a company and sold it. And every time, you know, I had 29-year-old guys walking away with millions of dollars and the company sold. And so that's how we attract people now is, is hey, these guys have done it before. They're doing it again. They have the money. And, you know, I, I think it's going to happen again. I think we're going to, with what's happening in the market right now, this recession is, is very timely. We have capital and we're going to buy into this market. We're going to be strong in this market. And I hope to be the largest buyer of build to rent in the country in this market. And I think we will honestly think we will. What do you, you're in Dallas. I mean, Lisa and I do searches all across the country, but we're, you know, we st I started my career in New York and Lisa's in New York. I'm in the San, I'm San Francisco Bay area. And so, you know, when I started in this world, it was like New York, you know, it's still probably the the most real estate firms or you know institutional capital, large real estate firms. Um, and Dallas was you know it's a big city, but it's definitely become like one of the biggest cities now. I mean, I think New York, Los Angeles, Dallas, Chicago, 
or like in the top firms or, or cities out there for, for real estate. How have you seen, I guess, the talent raise? It's incredible in Dallas. Dallas, there's so much real estate talent. And it seems you have more and more large kind of public companies, you know, moving to Texas, real estate company, moving to Texas and building headquarters in Texas, and Goldman Sachs building their big facility in Texas and uh, campus downtown there. It's, it's just the talent level in Dallas, I, I think, is unmatched anywhere in the country. You've got the best deal guys, you've got the, the best, you know, developers, especially in our industry, the apartment mm -hmm. industry, just a huge, huge group of those folks here. And it, it, it's amazing. And uh, so it's competitive too. That's the other yeah. side of it is when you want to hire somebody, uh, you're competing with all these other large real estate companies that are based in Dallas and it, it makes it difficult. So we, fortunately we have people that have worked with us before that, you know, want to come back. And so that's been the majority of our hiring, but there's also some resources out there. I just think are amazing and that we've really dipped into at a college. I'm a big believer of getting people right out of school yeah. and, you know, grooming them we've got a track record of doing it track record of those guys you know building up stock portfolios and cashing out and so that's what we've done so everybody on my team my head of acquisitions was was, was that way he's been with me for you know, 15 hired him right out of school mm -hmm. lots of people that work with us have been right out of school and just we just hired a few more but there's there's resources that I think today are as good as it gets for what we do, especially for an analyst types, uh, construction, construction management types, and engineers. And it's actually the Texas A&M Real Estate uh, yeah. Master's of Real Estate program is awesome. We have a few people out of there right now. And I, I, I tell you, they come to you, it's like they already have five years experience. Awesome. And I see how it works down there. I'm on the board, you know, we, it's all real estate guys that are on the board and they have to pitch to us. They have to sell, you know, different programs to us. They have to, you know, come to us for capital and we do all this kind of, you know, these programs that where that's part of the course curriculum, you know? And so we grade them and they've got just terrific, uh, networking through this program, but I can tell you, everybody we've ever hired out of that program has been as good as it gets. They come in ready to go. Yeah, that's one of the bigger. I mean, NYU, A and M, um, yeah, probably Georgetown, maybe or something. Yeah, that, that's one of the bigger, well-known programs for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, what do you have? You found that? Um, I mean, the talents raised there. How, how, how many people do you work with, works, work with you at uh, your firm? Well, in Moore, which, you know, again, we're partnered with Stockbridge. We're technically a subsidiary of Stockbridge. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, I, I, I own the name Moore, but we're partnered. We're basically partners with, with Stockbridge. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so we're 20... 21 people at more 
Stockbridge has, you know, I think it's $32 billion of assets under management. It's 150 or so people across the country. So we share resources. So I have Stockbridge people in my office that have oh, okay. That's cool. my office. And, uh, you know, we, we use Stockbridge accounting and Stockbridge HR and, and we just share resources. On, oh, that's great. Time. That's, I mean, that's what our firm does too. Um, and so like, what are you seeing over the next couple of years? Like, I mean, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but what, what are you projecting over the next couple of five years in this space? Well, I think the next couple of years, you know, it's, it's hard to know how bad it's going to get, but I think it's going to be tough next year. I think eventually the recession is going to kick in and eventually, you know, unemployment is going to go up and eventually, you know, we're going to be impacted in our rental business as well as, as people start moving home and they already are. I saw some statistics about this the other day, you know, last time or after great financial crisis, I see, think something like three and a half million renters moved back home. Mom and dad, you're starting to see that dynamic again as we look at our reasons for move out. It's financial and I'm going to move back home. So it, I think it's next year and really probably midway through 2024, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. Good for us because we're buying into yeah. that. Uh, but operations are going to be struggle. So I think you'll, you'll start to see some the capital markets are just in disarray. I mean, the, the funds all have redemption queues. There's an article the other day in the Wall Street Journal about that where investors all want their money out while they're yeah. still valued, high values. But you're seeing real-time impact on values, both in single-family apartments. I think prices have moved 20 to 25% already. That's a lot. That's a big move. Now, I also think price, things were overpriced by 20 to 25% a year ago. Yeah. So, so maybe you're just, you're kind of getting back to the trend line. We have a trend line. You can go back 50 years and it's pretty straight. Well, we had this, this, you know, just massive increase in values. And I think we're just kind of settling back at the trend line. But I think values could, could drop further. Um, I think unemployment, as I mentioned, is going to go up and the capital markets, you know, who knows? Lenders are nervous. They don't want to do anything. Construction loans are hard to get. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking large national developers can't get a construction loan on certain assets. And so I think it, it's going to be very much like 2009 and 10 over the next couple of years. And uh, so you just have to dig in. Uh, you're going to see distress in the market. You're going to, you know, I think if, I, if, if I, I'm a young person out in the market, I, again, I want to be with a company that has capital and is out doing stuff, not with a company that's trying to, you know, just get through the next couple of years and survive. And so... Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Um, now, having said that, 
you know, it's part of my shtick to predict doom and gloom, okay? especially <laughs> sellers, right? So I always want the seller to think that I think it's going to be doom and gloom. But uh, <laughs> I just, I, I just hope it's not too bad. Um, there was a lot of distress and a lot of big companies went out of business. There were Dallas-based developers that had, you know, a thousand employees that went to five employees in one year. Yeah, wow. You know? And um, I hope it's not like that. Don't think it will be. Uh, but, you know, interest rates are the key. And so you've had a mass, massive adjustment in values. I, I, I can tell you, one of the exercises I've done over the years with my new people that come in is I pull out my underwriting from projects that we bought, like in, at Amley in 2000, when interest mm. rates were at eight. Because they're seeing these three and four cap rates and they think this is normal. Well, guess what? Right now, you're up to six, maybe six and a quarter. You may go back to eight. We could we could see 8% mortgage rates, I think, yeah. by next year. I mean, who thought? I never thought I'd see that again. But, uh, yeah, so I guess the long and the short of it is I think there's going to be uh, – some tough sledding here, but the fundamentals are so good for this sector. There's such huge demand for housing and such housing shortage. When you combine immigration and just natural population growth, what's going to happen is I think new construction is going to be choked off the next couple of years. So you're going to have pent up demand going into the end of 24 and 25, and uh, I think those are going to be kind of rocket ship years for our industry. So that's kind of, and hopefully we can make something happen again, and I can truly retire. <laughs> I'm sure you. I'm sure you'd be great. Yeah. Uh, so. That's awesome, man. Well, are you ready for the the next section of our podcast called the hot seat? Sure. Oh. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities reduce turnover and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Dun, dun, dun. Do you have a book or okay. podcast recommendation, Mark? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really into the whole podcast scene. Podcasts um, are the worst, by the way. You know, I, <laughs> I, they just irritate me uh, because there's a lot of the... I guess political, and I, I 
really don't want to say which ones I watch, but um, political podcasts that I watch. And I just got to the point to where it's, it can be kind of silly at times. Um, you know, I read a lot, but what I read is Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and mm. everything that ever comes out on CNBC. And so I'm not, not much of a book reader at this point in my life, just kind of get distracted too much. I've read a lot of books in my life, but uh, it's just I couldn't really give a recommendation today. Well, okay. I can't even tell you the last time I read a book. It's been years. That's okay. But with social media, it's kind of like, what's the point? I'm reading a book about, uh, I think one of the, our guests recommended it about, oh no, it was Bob Flanner. He recommended the one about Teddy Roosevelt when he went down the Amazon River. Oh, wow. Pretty Is fast. it good? After, after he lost his the third election, he ran under the third party. When he, uh-huh. uh, he Then he decided... I'm going to, you know, he, he'd always mourn and mourn losses by doing crazy shit, basically. And what, what's, what's the name of that book? River of Doubt. Um, and so he would always, you know, he was getting, he was getting uh, asked to speak in different countries about like democracy in Argentina and Peru and stuff. And he's like, Hey, I'm going to do a Amazonian, you know, unexplored part of the Amazon on like little crazy, like, hollowed out logs basically it was it's just insane th- thinking about it but that's the kind of guy he was yeah and different times it's not like he had a cell phone to help him navigate no, <laughs> no. <laughs> we'd love to hear about your most memorable deal sounds like you have a lot to choose from well that's pretty simple it's um when monogram sold um, in 2017. So public company, you know, selling a public company, uh, the problem with being a public company is you're always for sale. Everything's transparent. Everybody can look at your financials and they can in five minutes kind of come up with a valuation for your company. And, um, so I'll tell you a quick story on that leading up to the, the, most impressive deal we ever did was uh, so we listed on the New York Stock Exchange. I think it was November seventeenth, two thousand fourteen. Friday, I think Thursday or Friday. So anyway, New York, very exciting. They co- we didn't think we were going to get to ring the bell. They called us like the day before. Said if you can get up here, the people that were going to ring the bell tomorrow can do it. Oh, well, that's pretty so cool. And it was, that was very cool experience, as cool as it gets. And um, I'll tell you more about that some other time. But um, so I come back to Dallas on Monday, and now I'm CEO of a publicly traded New York Stock Exchange traded company. Very cool, very excited. Show up in my office bright and early. I get a call from a guy that is CEO of another public apartment REIT. He said, hey, Mark, I'm in Dallas. Can I stop by and see you? I just wanted to come meet you in person and whatever. I said, sure. So he came by and he sat across the table for me, 
from me. He said, I want to buy your company. <laughs> First day. I've only been CEO for like 12 hours. <laughs> and he said he was serious. I mean, he, he wanted to talk to the board. And uh, anyway, long story short, it didn't, nothing, nothing happened. The board wasn't interested in talking. So we go down the road uh, for just three and a half years and, and still it seemed like every few months somebody knocked on the door and said, we want to buy your company. We were smallish relative to the big equity residentials and all these companies. We were kind of, we had the nicest portfolio. We were trading at a discount and uh, we were a real target. So then um, started probably a year, it really into 2016, I got a call from a big name in the business that said kind of the same thing. And he was a friend of mine. I knew him, knew the guy very well. And he basically said he had the money, he thought, to do a deal and um, just had to settle on a price. So that... <clears throat> You know, it, it was really four and a half billion dollars in, in real estate. So big deal. And um, what's amazing about that is you can't talk about it. You can't really tell anybody. <laughs> you can't tell your employees. And, you know, I brought one or two people kind of under the tent. And you sell this, this company, four and a half billion dollars, um, just having one-on-one -on -one conversations with the, the, the CEO of the, the buying company. And that was the only negotiation. It was just me and him. Uh, it was nobody else. I had to keep my board informed along the way of kind of what they were saying. And you had to keep it so hush-hush. I, I couldn't tell anybody. I mean, literally, I couldn't tell family what was going on. Yeah. And uh, so, so that was the most exciting kind of year. It took a year to get to the point of getting it done, knowing that this big thing was going to happen. And that, uh, you know, I had a team of people that were all going to have this big payday and they didn't know it, but I knew it. So I came, <laughs> it's like Christmas day for like, you got to know about it for a year. Yeah. That sounds awful. Right. And, and, and amazing. That's right. So, so, so that was it. And so when it was announced, uh, finally it became public, it would, it was still tough because employees, you know, they knew because of who was buying us that most, at least the corporate people would have be looking around. And so it, it was kind of bittersweet. I mean, people had paydays, uh, some people had large paydays, but it, it, it was bittersweet. But I'll never forget that day when it came out and all the calls I received from people that said, I can't believe you didn't tell me what was going on. <laughs> my brother, my brother being one. And, um, but yeah, that's, that, that was all very exciting. So big You're, you're trustworthy. That's hard. I don't know if I'd be able to do that. Uh, you mentioned that you have you know, great talent in Dallas and you, you've worked a lot with A&M, Texas A&M. Like what, what do you look for when you're hiring someone? Well, that's interesting because um, to think about because we we've got a couple of things that that I really say to candidates. Uh, 
and talk to them about and try to determine. First of all, we do, you know, kind of caliper type personality tests on everybody. Okay. I think the number one thing that I look forward to because the nature of our business, it's very up and down. A lot of times you don't control your destiny in a particular time frame. There may be times when you're buying a lot, times when you don't have the capital, you can't buy. I look for thick skinnedness, right? <laughs> I honestly, and that's the word I use. I, I want somebody that can come in and has a personality, I think, that can see through that, won't get nervous about the cycle and things going on and fast growth and slowing down and everything else. And so I, I want somebody that's even keel and, um, you know, that's probably a primary thing. The other thing is the interview process for me, uh, the confidence that they uh, portray or they present to me in an interview is, is the one thing that impresses me. I, I want to see somebody that's confident because, you know, I, I, I tell them this is a risky business. I see a lot of people get into this business and they, they can't cut it. They can't wait it out. They can't stand the ups and downs. They just, they want to something more steady and stable. That's not what you have here. This is, it's frantic at times. We were talking earlier. It's frantic right now for us as we have closings coming up and we have to get investment committee packages out. And guys are working, you know, like from six in the morning to ten at night. And I had a we had a, a call just last night that lasted till ten p.m. A four-hour conference call. But then there are times when you know, just look, chill out. Take some time. Go do what you want. Don't worry about nothing going on. So we work that way. I, I would say we're probably not a very structured environment. So if, if I feel like the person requires a lot of structure, he's probably not going to cut it yeah. uh, or she's not going to cut it. But uh, we, we yeah, it's kind of a hectic and it can be volatile environment when you work with a real estate company with a fund that's out buying new properties. It's just, that those are the kind of the big things. So last question. Um, this is the impact real estate podcast. So we'd love to hear about how you or your company might be making an impact on the world. Well, uh, that, that's a interesting question too. We talk a lot about that and I, can tell you from an ESG perspective and a social perspective, our new company and, um, you know, we're, we're rolling out a new brand right now for this single family built to rent part of the company. It'll be out on January one, but that's the whole focus is, um, you know, it's what can we do for the community, you know, care more, our company name, more share things like that i like and, that yeah that's good yeah, yeah. it's and, wonderful yeah yeah so that that's a primary focus but the other side of it is you know i i know there's a lot of talk in the industry about you know these uh single family rental companies that are buying up single family houses and driving up prices for you know potential homeowners in fact there are some parts of the country where they've started to, you know, restrict 
these institutions are talking about it in Dallas right now. Of all places. Oh, yeah. And um, the, the big institutional companies from buying these properties for rental homes. I think where we add value, we're adding rental homes. Okay, We're not taking existing single-owned homes off the market. We're adding housing. We're building single-family rental purpose-built for rent. So mm -hmm. it's very... And I think there's huge demand for that. And, uh, you know, the whole home ownership is different. Well, you think that most people want to own. I, I, I think the millennial generation feels a little differently about that. They're being tied down and the big down payment and the mortgage and everything else. And they, in this transient environment, we're, we're, we're giving them what they want, the single family home, but allowing them the kind of flexibility to live your life when you're young, to move around and to do different things. And we're also creating a, a product that is perfect for the sort of work from homers. Okay. And so it's remarkable when you go around to our communities during the day and I know they have jobs because, <laughs> but they're, they're paying rent. <laughs> they're paying rent, and they but they, they work from home. So I think we're adding value in that regard for the the people that are able to work from home. Some are all the time. This product type is perfect. It's big, you know. It's three and four bedroom units and backyards and the whole the whole shebang without having to to buy the home. So I think that's where we add terrific value in this asset class. And I awesome. bet that they feel a sense of community that people traditionally got from offices that they lost during the pandemic, maybe. And now, you know, just giving them that, I think, is a is a huge give back as well. So yeah, it, it's remarkable. And, and that the, you brought that up, the residents do their own thing. I mean, they you know, they create their own sort of uh, uh, home events for the properties and have parties and get-togethers and everything else. And, yeah, it's a sense of community that you don't get in a typical single family. I can't even tell you who my neighbors are, but these are truly <laughs> community. Yeah. So. Well, you're our neighbor on this podcast. Yeah. Maybe it should be, won't you be my neighbor? Maybe that should be your slogan. <laughs> <laughs> You could be Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Picture of you with a, with a little sweater on. Well, Mark, it's great to have you on the podcast, man. Thanks for sharing your story. You definitely have a lot of great experience, and uh, it's wonderful getting to you. know, I've known you for a while now, but getting to know you a little better over the last hours or so. so thanks so much. Thank you.